President Biden touched down in South Korea today, marking his first trip to Asia as president. On his to-do list, strengthening alliances and countering China. Canada bans gear from Huawei and ZTE. Officials say the two Chinese telecom giants pose a threat to Canada's national security. At the same time, Beijing lifts a ban on certain Canadian food imports. Many suspect it involved high food prices and good shortages across China. Taiwan won't be allowed to attend an important World Health Organization meeting. That's as Communist China objects to the island's involvement. And the Biden administration is pushing a new proposal. If passed, it would give the WHO's director general unprecedented powers. But one major concern is coming to light. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. President Biden has arrived in South Korea, marking the start of a five-day visit. The trip will also take him to Japan and represents his first journey to Asia as president. His first stop was a massive Samsung electric semiconductor plant, underscoring a message of economic security with an eye on China and the war in Ukraine. And Didi's Chen Wu has more. President Biden arrived in South Korea on Friday in his first trip to Asia as president. The pandemic and Russian invasion of Ukraine have kept the Biden administration preoccupied. But now the president is turning his attention back to Asia. So much, so much of the future of the world is going to be written here in the Indo-Pacific over the next several decades. Biden opened his Asia trip by addressing the computer chip shortage that has plagued the world economy. He toured a Samsung plant that will serve as model for a $17 billion semiconductor factory that the Korean company plans to open in Texas. Greeting Biden at the chip plant was South Korea's new president, Yoon Suk-yul, who took office just over a week ago. President Biden's visit to the Samsung chip plant is a good opportunity for us to remind ourselves of not only the economic and security importance of computer chips, but also the significance of the global strategic alliance between South Korea and the U.S. through these chips. Compared to his predecessor, the South Korean leader has expressed a more confrontational approach toward North Korea and a tougher stance on China. Biden remarked that economic shockwaves from Russia's war in Ukraine have further spotlighted the need to secure critical supply chains so that the U.S. economy and national security are not dependent on countries that don't share our values. This comes as the allies face a growing threat from North Korea's nuclear weapons and missile programs. U.S. intelligence says there's a genuine possibility that North Korea will conduct another ballistic missile or nuclear test during Biden's visit. The country's authoritarian leader Kim Jong-un is trying to enforce the idea that the North is a nuclear power and that he's determined to negotiate security and economic concessions from a position of strength. Also watching Biden's visit is China. The U.S. and its allies rely on the communist-led country as a trade partner, yet U.S. officials increasingly frame China as a competitor. That's as shared economic interests have often revealed conflicting value systems. Later in the agenda, Biden on Tuesday will meet in Tokyo with fellow leaders of the Indo-Pacific alliance known as the Quad, a group that includes Australia, India and Japan. 
The four nations share concerns over China's growing regional assertiveness and increasingly capable armed forces. Meanwhile, China views the grouping as a part of a U.S.-led push to impede its economic and political rise and a roadblock in its ambitions to annex Taiwan. Biden wants to demonstrate that he can handle problems in both the East and the West and that the U.S. has the ability to uphold its democratic values across the world. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Coinciding with President Biden's visit to Asia, China is holding military exercises in the disputed South China Sea. Chinese authorities said the drills began Thursday and will continue through Monday. President Biden's trip to South Korea is going to test the tough talk on China by the newly elected president of the country. Yoon Suk-yeol faces a tough balancing act between maintaining strong ties with the U.S., while China remains its largest trading partner. Biden's trip comes with a tumultuous backdrop. For one, the U.S. is grappling with China's refusal to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and there are tensions between Beijing and Taiwan. Beyond that, North Korea is ramping up its missile tests. One big focus for Biden's trip is countering China's growing economic influence in the region. According to Politico, he needs to coax allies into security and economic alliances to achieve this. He'll be working to gain support for his Indo-Pacific strategy and economic frameworks. It's seen as a delayed response from an administration that came in with a focus on China. The withdrawal from Afghanistan and the largest conventional military attack since World War II in Europe drew a lot of attention. According to former National Security Advisor Michael Green, who served under the Bush administration, the Ukraine crisis woke up U.S. allies in Asia. That includes Japan, Australia, South Korea, and Singapore. He says it has opened their eyes to the threat of aggressive states attacking democracies. And so I think President Biden goes to Asia at a time when he can say, yes, we have a lot on our plate. We have to deal with the crisis in Europe and we have growing challenges in Asia. But for the first time, really, in the post-war era, our allies in Europe and our allies in Asia are coming together and recognizing that we all have something at stake um, in a global uh, challenge to democracies from authoritarian states. Green cited opinion polls in Japan and South Korea saying public distrust of China is high there. Green hints at how this may help the administration handle North Korea. And um, the one thing that will help them is because Japan and Korea are so aligned with us now, they will be able to put forward a very united front with our two most powerful allies in Northeast Asia. And of course, Australia and Europe, NATO and others backing up that effort, which will help because that'll put pressure on China to, 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 to rein in the North Koreans more. The White House predicts North Korea will conduct another missile test while Biden is in the region. One of the Chinese Communist Party's media mouthpieces has something to say about President Biden's trip to Asia. China state-run Xinhua News Agency published the comments this week. In an op-ed, the agency noted it will be the first time Biden has come to the region since becoming president. But it drew attention to his decision to visit South Korea and Japan. A move it said exposed Washington's so-called sinister intention. The op-ed goes on to say the U.S.'s move shows the country is, quote, undermining mutual trust and cooperation between countries in the region, and that the U.S. is damaging regional stability and development. It also accused the U.S. of, quote, sticking to the Cold War mindset and suppressing China's development at all costs. 
The USS Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier has kept a presence in the Indo-Pacific for months. It's a visual show of force in the region, meant to keep an eye on China's growing military presence, but also to deter nuclear-armed North Korea. Here's more on what's happening. If you ask United States 7th Fleet Commander Carl Thomas, this is what deterrence looks and sounds like. Deterrence to date has worked, uh, and I, I'm hopeful that it continues to work, but my job is to be prepared in case it doesn't. For the past several months, the U.S. Navy Carrier Strike Group 3, led by the USS Abraham Lincoln, and armed with the U.S. Navy's most advanced fighter wing, has conducted joint drills with allies like Japan and patrolled the waters of the Indo-Pacific. Being out here operating as a very visible, a very agile, uh, dynamic force, uh, there's no better way to provide the deterrence that we need in this part of the region. We need to have a more robust, uh, like-minded states coalition. Uh, because the China's rise is now the global phenomenon. A reality that isn't lost on Quad member states, a coalition made up of the United States, Japan, Australia, and India, whose leaders are set to meet in Tokyo early next week. With South Korea watching from the sidelines, member states are likely to discuss a unified response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the recent flurry of weapons tests conducted by North Korea, and of course, China. One of the things that China doesn't have is friends and allies. They have subjects. We have friends and allies who want to stand shoulder to shoulder with the United States. But according to Cleo Pascal, an Indo-Pacific strategic specialist, the key to combating China's rise isn't necessarily through military strength. By the time you get to the military part, you're almost too late. You, you don't want to cut off China militarily. You want to block its influence politically and economically first. However, as China and Russia work to strengthen their own military alliance in the region, Rear Admiral J.T. Anderson says the U.S.'s presence, along with the strength of its allies, has proven to be an effective deterrent. Nevertheless, if that deterrent fails, our job is to fight and win, period. An outcome no one wants, but one the U.S. military and its allies must prepare for. Canada's public safety minister is calling attention to gear made by Chinese tech giants Huawei and ZTE. He says the equipment could present a high risk to the country's telecommunications sector. Canada is a, um, a country where uh, people can innovate and start new businesses. Uh, and leverage new technologies in 5G and beyond. <clears throat> but we also need to safeguard against uh, the risks which can be exploited within those networks. Canadian companies are now required to remove any existing Huawei and ZTE equipment in their 5G networks by June 2024 and any 4G equipment by December 2027. But Beijing isn't taking the move kindly. The Chinese foreign ministry said it strongly opposes the decision and will take necessary measures to combat it. Banning the gear means Canada now joins the rest of the Five Eyes Alliance and blocking out Chinese telecom providers. The intelligence sharing network links Canada with four others, the United States, the UK, Australia and New Zealand, all of which have already banned the equipment. Canada is the last to do so because of complications with the Chinese Communist Party. Canada first pointed out the national security threats posed by the Chinese equipment in 2018. 
Later the same year, on a U.S. warrant, Canada arrested Huawei Chief Financial Officer Meng Wanzhou. Soon after that, Beijing arrested two Canadians for what Chinese authorities called espionage. This back and forth ended last year, when Meng was released and went back to China. Beijing also released the two Canadians the same day. The U.S. has added Huawei to a trade blacklist. It says Huawei and ZTE have links to the Chinese military. Beijing is lifting a tough three-year ban on certain Canadian imports. The Canadian government announced Wednesday that two Canadian canola giants are permitted to export to China again. China consumes massive amounts of edible oil every year, and Canada is the world's largest producer of canola oil. Before 2018, 40 percent of Canadian canola was exported to China. Though after getting banned from shipping to China in 2019, those exports dropped more than 70 percent that year. Beijing's ban came amid other diplomatic tensions with Canada. It started with Canada's arrest of Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou, who was set for extradition to the U.S. The canola embargo has impacted more than just the two nations involved. It hit global supply chains, alongside increasing prices for edible oil. Even though China has been looking for substitutes for Canadian canola, the result was far from ideal due to both bad weather and the decline in demand from China's ban. Stock market prices for Canadian canola producers have struggled. And for now, Canadian officials say that trading status won't change too much for the moment. Beijing didn't give details on why it's lifting the ban. But high edible oil prices and food shortages across the country likely play a big role. Taiwan won't be attending an important World Health Organization meeting later this month. The island says the WHO ignored its repeated requests to be allowed to attend as an observer. The rejection stems from WHO member China, which has spoken against Taiwan being admitted. The WHO's annual assembly will run from May 22nd to 28th. From 2009 to 2016, Taiwan had been allowed to attend the assembly as observer amid warmer relations between Beijing and Taipei. But the island has been denied a full WHO membership. The island is excluded from most global groups due to objections from Beijing. China insists that the island should not be treated as an independent country because Beijing considers it to be one of its own provinces. Despite that, the communist regime has never ruled Taiwan. The island has its own democratically elected leaders and constitution. Taiwan rejects China's claim of sovereignty and says only its people can decide the island's future. The U.S. State Department said earlier this week that Taiwan should be allowed to attend the WHO meeting. But there's even more happening with the WHO. The World Health Organization approved a Chinese vaccine for emergency use on Thursday. The drug, called Convidicia, is recommended for people ages 18 and up. The WHO says the vaccine has an efficacy of 64 percent. Convidicia is the 11th shot against COVID-19 to get clearance from the Global Health Agency and the third one from China. The first two Chinese vaccines to be approved were a dose made by the Beijing Institute of Biological Products and the CoronaVac from Sinovac Life Sciences. The emergency use listing aims to make medicines and vaccines available as rapidly as possible. Other vaccines that have similar clearance from the WHO include those by Pfizer, Moderna and Johnson & Johnson, among others. 
Also in the health sector, the Biden administration is pushing for new amendments linked to the World Health Organization. If passed, they would give the head of the organization unprecedented powers. For one, the director general would be able to declare a public health emergency in any nation, and he could base it on whatever evidence he chooses. But there are concerns, and one of them involves China's influence in the organization. Let's take a look. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services described what they call the importance of equity and equitable access to medical countermeasures and the negative impacts of misinformation and disinformation related to the pandemic. They say that's why the international health regulations should be updated. The path that we're on right now with these proposed amendments and this international pandemic treaty that they're seeking uh, leads straight to global tyranny. Alex Newman is an investigative journalist. He told NTD the ultimate goal is to make the WHO a global health ministry with more power than any government or institution should have. If the regulation is updated according to the proposal, a few significant changes would be made. One is that if the WHO declares a public health emergency in a country, it doesn't have to get verification from the country where the crisis is declared, nor does it have to consult with them beforehand. And the WHO can accept reports from sources outside of the nation in question. Another change is that if a nation with a suspected health problem doesn't cooperate within 48 hours, the WHO could share that country's information with other nations. Newman says going down this path can have a dangerous outcome. Communist China has an enormous influence within the WHO. When you add to that the fact that the WHO is run by an individual who's been very closely associated with communist movements. In fact, he served on the Central Committee of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, a, a Marxist organization with a long history of violence and other problems. Uh, this just becomes a recipe for disaster. But according to the United Nations, the WHO should get these powers. One U.N. report claimed in May 2021 that the pandemic would have been avoided if the International Health Organization had had greater authority. According to Newman, Americans' basic rights and liberties are on the line. It is critical that Americans who value their, their liberties, Americans who value the ability to govern themselves without interference from foreign powers, from international organizations, get involved. Uh, there are several options right now that are being pursued by some of the forces opposed to this. Uh, one, of course, is to contact Congress and to point out that uh, this is a very bad use of taxpayer money. It's an outrageous abuse of power by the Biden administration and try to get Congress to stop it. The proposed U.S. amendments are scheduled to be discussed next week. That's when the U.N.'s 75th World Health Assembly in Geneva, Switzerland, will take place. Coming up, Beijing is reportedly banning senior officials from owning assets abroad. Is the move part of Beijing's efforts to insulate itself from possible sanctions in case it opts to invade Taiwan? Find out more after the break here on China in Focus. The Chinese Communist Party is barring senior officials from owning property abroad or stakes in overseas entities. The rule applies to assets both directly under their names as well as those in their spouses' and children's names. That's according to a report by the Wall Street Journal. The report says the foreign assets ban was outlined in a Communist Party internal notice issued back in March. This as Beijing is trying to insulate itself from the possibility of Western sanctions, like those Russia is now dealing with for invading Ukraine. 
U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman warned last month that Beijing should take the right lesson from the consequences of the Ukraine war. The comment is believed to suggest that the Chinese Communist Party could face heavy sanctions if it invades Taiwan. China's vice foreign minister later responded, saying China won't be scared by threats of sanctions. China's strict zero-COVID-19 policy is hitting international schools in the country hard. That says foreign teachers leave the country in droves. Here are the details. International schools in China are facing an exodus of foreign teachers and students, with some in the industry saying certain schools will not survive Beijing's pursuit of COVID-0. Travel curbs, lockdowns and increased regulation are all contributing to the woes of the sector. About 40% of teachers are expected to leave mainland jobs this year, up from 30% last year and 15% before the pandemic. Alexa Moss is the head of early learning at an international school in Guangzhou. She says they are struggling to replace the teachers who are leaving. Now that we're in the 2022 recruiting season, we're finding a new pattern emerging of teachers and leadership and basically all constituents in international schools are choosing to leave China. So that candidate pool within the country has shrunk. So it's harder to recruit within China and it's hard to recruit outside of China. So that finding quality staff has just been really tricky, um, particularly in this recruiting cycle. International schools can be lucrative business with fees sometimes exceeding $44,000 a year. They are seen by middle-class Chinese parents as a way of improving their child's chances of winning a place at a top global university. But in recent years, some have avoided emigrating as China was largely free of COVID. Now, as the country faces a resurgence of the virus, foreign families are choosing to return to their homes and others have put off moving to China altogether. Tom Olmert, is executive director of the Association of China and Mongolia International Schools. Many heads have told me that they have been spending up to 300 hours or more trying to recruit teachers to come to China. But now people around the world have been reading about the lockdowns and just don't feel a need to subject themselves to that. So they take jobs elsewhere. On top of this, Beijing has moved to limit foreign influence in the education system. This has meant that some schools have had to grapple with changing regulations. Recently, a Beijing school affiliated with the English public school Harrow was forced to drop its famous brand name. And London's Westminster School has dropped a plan for schools around China. To end today's episode, concerns have been rising in Australia after the Solomon Islands signed a security treaty with China. An expert breaks down what the Five Eyes can do about the situation. Here's more. An expert says the Five Eyes Alliance faces a challenge when it comes to finding solutions for the situation. It's a bit of a touchy topic um, because um, New Zealand has, has been drifting into the Chinese economic orbit uh, in, a, in, a, in a very obvious way. She says it raises a lot of questions. The Five Eyes Alliance, it's, it is a colonial, a little, you know, post-colonial construct that has some colonial elements to it. And one of them is that each of the countries was sort of designated primary zones of strategic responsibility, especially after the end of the Cold War. 
Australia was designated a zone that includes the Solomon Islands. Which is why what happened in the Solomons is a direct failure of Canberra's policy. New Zealand was assigned the Polynesian zone. It goes from New Zealand basically all the way up to Hawaii. And, you know, we acknowledge that New Zealand is a weak member of a strategic alliance and it is drifting into a Chinese orbit. Pascal touches on the risk. But what that means is that this strategic zone that it has been sort of supposed to keep an eye on, which is Polynesia, would also drift. If, if New Zealand isn't even defending itself, then how, how, how or why would it be defending Polynesia? In fact, it would be well-placed to leverage its position to, get, to gain concessions from um, uh, China in order to give China access into Polynesia. She says the alliance is facing complicated circumstances. So um, in terms of five eyes, you know, there's that problem in New Zealand. There's the problem in Canada, which is also very heavily penetrated through Chinese political warfare. Pascal says that's why we're seeing new mini-laterals, meaning offshoots of the larger established alliances. The smaller versions are designed to reinforce the older ones, which she suggests may not be as effective as they once were. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow.